Welcome to Behind the Line, where we pull back the curtain on the challenges facing first responders and frontline workers. The work you do is unique, and so are the stresses that go with it. Join me as we tackle key issues to reduce risks for burnout, and as we work to support you in doing the job you love without sacrificing being the kind of person you want to be. Hey there, and welcome back to Behind the Line. I'm your host, Lindsay Foss. If you're new to Behind the Line, what you should know about me is that I'm a clinical counselor specializing in trauma therapy. And after over a decade working with first responders and frontline workers around issues like burnout, compassion fatigue, PTSD, and related OSIs, I've become a passionate wellness advocate and educator for those who sacrifice so much for our communities out on the front lines. Behind the Line is a place for us to talk about the real life behind the scenes challenges facing you on the front lines. I created this podcast with the hope of bringing easy access to skills for wellness, allowing you to find greater sustainability both on the job and off. Today, I am joined by two incredible people who I am so grateful for. T.C. Randall was an ER nurse of 14 years and is the author of the book, The View from the Wrong Side of the Day, all about his experiences as a nurse and facing an occupational stress injury resulting in years off the job to work at recovering. My other guest, Jennifer Pound, is a recently retired RCMP staff sergeant who was the face of the Integrated Homicide Investigation Team in Vancouver for a number of years. And she's the creator of the blog fuelforfirstresponders.com. Both TC and Jen have been on Behind the Line before and were a part of some of our most listened to episodes. They each have an inside perspective of life on the front lines, and they both have insight and wisdom to share around what it looks like to connect with therapy while working to recover from occupational stress injuries. They have both had a mixture of experiences, and as a result, they've both become advocates for systemic change and supporting frontline staff in accessing support more effectively and efficiently. The three of us sat down and enjoyed a conversation about their experiences of when therapy hasn't been a fit, like that pair of jeans you try on that just does not hug the right places, as well as their experience of finding their Goldilocks moment where it was just right. I've broken the conversation into two parts. Today's episode will focus on the stumbling blocks working to connect in therapy and learnings that came from both TC and Jen's experiences. Next week, you'll get to hear the rest of our conversation on when therapy is working and how to help yourself find that fit. During this episode, I referenced the Beating the Breaking Point Indicators Checklist and Triage Guide, and if you haven't checked it out yet, I really hope you do. You can find a link to it in the show notes for today's episode. Also, this is a good time to offer a reminder that registration for the Self-Care Dare 5-Day Challenge for first responders and frontline workers opens today. Again, the link is in the show notes. This is the last time we'll be running the D.A.R.E. for this year. So invest the 10 bucks in you and join us. All right, we're going to jump into this conversation. And I actually mean jump in. As soon as the three of us got on the call, the conversation took off before I could press record. So you'll stumble in as we're already rolling. I hope you enjoy. Body and healthcare really... um... Uh, fire department, ambulance, like we all go through these. Right. Um, our, our days are never based on 
the good stuff that happens. We no, always see people. Totally. We always deal with people on their worst day, right? That's, like that's sort totally of, it. Yeah. Yeah. There becomes a, a, a big open window for a lot of compassion fatigue out there. So it's, yeah. it's dealing with everybody else's pain and trauma and then internalizing that and then and trying to deal with that on uh, yeah. on our own levels as well. Totally. I think one of the things I often say on the show and like in my office is your guys's Tuesday is everybody else's worst day. And so it it's it's a different what is normal to you is not normal. Like that's not a normal person's Tuesday yeah. is not going to work and dealing with everybody else's worst possible case scenario. But that's what's expected. And it it becomes this weirdly normal thing. I think we kind of lose track of the fact that it is super not normal. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think um, too that one of you know one of the things that I discovered about you know going through the therapeutic process was that there's also very similar personalities, mm -hmm. right? In all these different professions, um, and it actually puts us at more risk um, mm. because we tend to be. Um, we tend to be more risk-taking kind of people to begin with, yeah. right? So we tend to, we're the people who see a fire and run towards it rather than running away from it. Um, and that, and also we tend to be a little more, um, what's the word, in your, in your face kind of people. Yeah. So we tend not, so when something bad happens, we tend to just sort of roll with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah. maybe not talk about it as much as we should. <laughs> totally. Oh, I yeah. think, and I think that goes back to the piece where it's normalized, right? Where yeah. we go through that every single day and, and we, um, we are there for other people's trauma. So it, it becomes yeah. less about us or it never really was about us. Yeah. Uh, it's more about them and then us just sort of keeping quiet and bottling it all up. And I agree, I think, I think people that get into these lines of work are AAA personalities to begin with. So yes. there is a sense of calm when you are running towards the danger as opposed to yeah. a sense of um, not right or awkwardness when you're running away from it. It just yeah. doesn't suit that personality. So I, yeah. I totally agree with you there. Mm -hmm. Well, and there's this piece of like, uh, you put on the professional hat and almost have to detach your humanity a little bit. And yet we also know those people who have gotten so far detached from their humanity in the work that they've lost track of of the helper piece that got them into it to begin with. So it's this tricky piece of like to keep the humanity piece attached means risking being wounded by what we're witnessing and exposed to. Detaching it all together removes us from being able to bring our own humanity to the humans we're interacting with and the kind of like raison d'etre for why we entered it to begin with, why any of it mattered. So it's like this precarious jostling. For sure. I think that's too where we see, um, kind of incident instances where the moral compass tends to become at risk as well when the humanity piece is sort of stripped away then you have a lack of understanding of where that right and wrong line is and i think Definitely. that's where we see a lot of um, bad decisions bad judgment a lot of um, really sort of 
just life-changing decisions that you really wouldn't have thought of taking when you first got into this job. It just changes you as a whole being. And that's, that's kind of the sad part is that people are sacrificing their souls for a job where there's just not, sometimes just not enough help to tackle it from the very first beginning of, of uh, understanding that you're starting to break down. And I think, think that's where we need to sort of nip it in the bud and just say we we need we need more help for the people that are starting to identify themselves going down the wrong path absolutely now i want to jump in for a second i love that we are just like naturally moving into these conversations but (laughs) super quick pause can we do like a really quick um for those who maybe didn't listen to the episodes we have done previously a really quick summary of like who each of you is um, what your background is and, and what leads you into having something to say about this topic about when therapy goes well versus when we kind of hit the pitfalls of, of engaging in something like therapy. Um, what has kind of led you into the place of, of speaking to that topic? So I don't know, uh, TC, why don't you go first? Um, so yes, my name's TC Randall. Um, I'm a, uh, I was an ER nurse for 14 years. I uh, have been off work now for almost for three years. Uh, I'm just in the process of trying to get back to work. Um, and I'm an author of a book called uh, The View from the Wrong Side of the Day. Uh, it's a book about my experiences as an, both as a nurse and as a nurse with post-traumatic stress. Thanks, TC. And then Jen, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, yeah, Jennifer Pound. I, I've been a police officer or was a police officer for close to 24 years. Uh, I just retired in January. Um, and I was off work for, for a number of years as well with uh, PTSD, um, not really understanding what all that world was all about. I entered it just with some physical symptoms of being unwell. And it kind of unraveled this journey that I've been on. And and ultimately led to a place where I feel like I need to advocate on behalf of other first responders who are going through the same battle. That's awesome. Thanks, Jen. So I wonder if maybe each of you can can speak a bit to your experience of kind of recognizing some of the mental health impacts that were happening for you as a result of your work and what it was like for you to try to seek out support early on in that process. Sure. So I think the first thing we have to talk about is um, is recognizing it. Uh, that was a very long process for me because, and I'm not sure, I'm sure it's the same in the RCMP, is that we don't talk about this. Um, the military has been on top of this for years now, and they've been talking about it and stuff. But um, in a lot of these first responder professions, we don't talk about our problems. Right. And other people don't talk to us about them. Um, I went through a year before I went off where things were falling apart and I had no idea why. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't even know what was wrong with me. Um, I knew I was, you know, things were going badly. I was having nightmares. I was angry all the time. my emotions were like a roller coaster um and to the point of you know i'd be sitting at the triage desk and wanting to 
punch people in the face, like just rage. Yes. Um, and not really understanding where that was coming from. Uh, mm -hmm. Nobody, there was no talk of post-traumatic stress or anything like that. It was, it was just me thinking I was crazy <laughs> totally. for a long time. And I think that, uh, I, I think that's the first thing we need to address when we talk about this issue is that um, we need two things. First off, we need maybe, I don't know if the word is guidelines, but there needs mm -hmm. to be a conversation going on about this at an official level. Like yeah. people coming to us and saying, these are the things you need to watch out for, right? In your, within yeah. yourself. Um, yeah. And then there needs to be a change in the culture as well amongst ourselves where it's, where it's okay to talk about it, where it's okay yeah. to say, um, you know, I've, I've had a bad day. <laughs> um, I think, you know, we were talking about that sort of personality that goes into these professions. And I think one of the things that we do is we ought, we have this sort of facade that we put up that's no nothing's wrong with me right yeah. i need to be on all the time i need to be that um that a type yeah. personality all the time and i can't admit that there's anything wrong and that right. sort of led me down a path where it was just like let's just ignore it and hope it goes away <laughs> totally <laughs> Well, and it's funny because while you're sharing that, I'm watching Jen nod. And I know that that was a significant part of your story, too, because we talked about that on the last episode we did together, that to some extent, part of your story was having some physiological hallmarks, but not knowing that that pointed to mental health concerns. And so kind of feeling this confusion of like, no one told me what to look for. So we pay really great lip service to ideas like watch for burnout, look out for PTSD. And we say it in these really broad terms, but no one's having conversations about what exactly it means to look for those things, how to get support. So even as we try to break the stigma of getting support for these things, we're not well identifying what those look like so that we can see them in ourselves before it gets so far down the rabbit hole. Right. Yeah, and I, I think part of the problem is that everybody is so different that they manifest in such different ways. And I, I, I know we in the RCMP, we're trying to lower the stigma attached to it, which I will say they've done a somewhat of a, a better job than they had before. Uh, but the problem is if you're going to destigmatize something, you have to be able to have the support for the people that are then brave enough to put up their hand and say, I need the help. And I think totally. the biggest eye opener for me is that, you know, you're coached along the way from all, all the, the senior management and your, your healthcare teams and you're, you're told, you know, put your hand up and, and identify yourself and don't go through it alone. But at the end of the day, that's exactly what happened is I put my hand up to ask for help, but there really was not the help there. So I think okay. what we need to do is ensure that if you're going to tell your people to be brave and put their hand up, you can't let them fall when they end yeah. up deciding to do that. And that was yeah. the, that I think really exacerbated the injury to begin with for me is mm -hmm. just being, well, first trying to understand what the injury was and why I was so physically sick. I, I couldn't put the two together. Mm -hmm. um, 
And then, you know, just trying to find the best support once I was diagnosed with something. And the best support was essentially non-existent. I, I was, you know, given roadblocks from three different doctors to say they were backlogged for six months. And when you're in a mm. position of desperation trying to just survive, you can't be put on a wait list for six months. Um, totally. You start to feel really alone. So I think yeah. the support for the people is really paramount. And yeah. it, it just didn't exist when I started going through my injury. So I, I, I feel like yeah. there needs to be a better pocket of a better pool of people that can help us, you know, crawl out of the, the darkness. Totally. Well, and I think you're naming this piece that's really about access, right? Like there needs to be expedient access to care when we're in these positions. Um, and I, I know you, Jen, and I have talked about this a little bit before that some of the um, challenges to accessing resources, particularly in BC, this isn't true everywhere, but in BC, um, is that certain organizations only um, refer or permit extended medical coverage and things like that for a specific subsection of mental health professionals. So in BC, largely it's psychologists um, because they're regulated. And so one of the, the challenges that you guys face in accessing support is that counselors are within BC currently not a regulated profession. So a lot of professional organizations won't allow us to enter in and offer some of those supports unless it's kind of vicariously through other things that vet us. So like, for example, I have a contract with WorkSafe BC um, where they vet the counselors that they choose to enlist with contracts um, and to ensure that we're qualified to do that work. But you would only be able to access that if you kind of go through that arm of the system, right? And not everyone does or has to or can. So there's different kind of roadblocks along the way that are almost like higher level systems than even just the like, there isn't anybody out there there are, you just don't necessarily qualify to see them or to have it paid for or some of those other pieces that make it additional obstacles that when you're in that headspace, you don't have the wherewithal to try to navigate all of these extra layers of like political, bureaucratic systems level junk that shouldn't be yours to figure out. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it, I think you're bang on there. It's, it's the access that's the problem. And I know with my own story and my journey in the beginning, I saw, I don't know how many psychologists and it really didn't, um, really didn't stick with me that I might not have a good fit with one of them. You just assume mm -hmm. that if you go see somebody, you're going to immediately start to get better. But the reality is, is they weren't a good fit for me. And it wasn't totally. until I saw my psychologist that I'm still currently with that I realized how how damaging it can be when you're with somebody that is not a good fit for you. And and specifically in our case, like you need somebody that understands the effects and and the the, mm -hmm. the depth of what uh, PTSI can can cause. And if you don't have that, you start to feel like it's just confirming that you really are just crazy. Totally. So I know both of you have experiences with this where there were initial therapists, you saw psychologists, counselors, whatever, who
who weren't a great fit or where the therapeutic approach that they were offering didn't feel like a great fit for what your needs were. So I wonder if each of you can maybe share a little bit about what that experience was like and what helped you notice um, what wasn't working. Um, for me, I think um, one, of, one of the problems was that uh, because I went through WorkSafe and WorkSafe has a very strict sort of definition of what counts as post-traumatic stress. Um, so I actually wound up in, it wasn't the ther- it wasn't the fact that I had a bad therapist. It was that the therapy he was doing was not a good fit for me. Um, I think one of the things that people assume when we're talking about post-traumatic stress in, you know, in uh, RCMP or uh nurses or is that it's based on an event it's that called it's that one yeah that one day <laughs> like yes that nothing magical happened one before call. that and nothing happened after that right it was yeah. that one day and that's all we're going to deal with totally. um, and i think for myself um a lot of my my post-traumatic stress didn't come from the events that I saw, or at least it didn't wholly come from those mm-hmm. events. Um, it was all the stuff that happened around those events. Uh, yeah. so there was there was a great deal of trust issues with uh, management, with the people who are sort of, I guess, in charge of you know, the healthcare system um, and the lack of support and feeling feeling vulnerable all the time. Um, being a nurse, it was, you know, it wasn't the fact that I had to deal with this guy who'd just gone through a horrible trauma. It was then the rest of it around that, like coming yeah. out and still having, you know, seven other patients to take care of and knowing yeah wasn't a safe environment and that um that i wasn't doing even you know adequate care for those other seven people mm-hmm. while i was taking care of this and the supports just weren't there to sort of deal with that so when i went into therapy the first thing that we did was we um they set me up with emdr um, which is great when dealing with specific events uh, mm-hmm. when you're dealing with a general feeling of not being in a safe environment, it doesn't work because there's no, there's nothing to focus on. Um, yeah, there's no specific a, target. Yeah, and I went through a year of that therapy wondering why it wasn't helping. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, not to say that it didn't help a bit, because it certainly did. I mean, I, you know, there were days definitely that brought up events that contributed to my condition but it was a whole picture it wasn't just this one thing (laughs) totally no i think that's a solid reflection right that there's um therapeutic approaches that are really great for certain things and again part of the challenge is in those moments you're a consumer of a service it shouldn't be up to you to have to know what types of therapy serve you best that should be the role of your therapist and part of what can be hard when you're under something like WorkSafe or something kind of in that vein 
because you tend to get placed with someone. Yeah. And so they are the authority. They're the expert in the room. They're the ones yeah. who has to assess what is going to be in your best interest. Um, and so we entrust that to them. And when they, uh, you know, have this one piece that they're trained in um, that generally works quite well, but doesn't work well for you, how do we navigate figuring out how we move into something that is a better fit when we feel like we're kind of stuck in that place and we don't know what we should be looking for? We don't know what we should be expecting or the timeline we should be expecting it in. It feels uncomfortable to ask yeah. those questions sometimes of the therapist we're seeing. I, I actually want to go back and address what you're saying there. And I think um, yeah. that um, we've all sort of touched on this. Uh, and I think it's important to recognize that one of the hallmarks of post-traumatic stress is that um, it, it makes it very difficult to focus. And it makes mm -hmm. it very difficult. So when we're talking about, I think we, we have to go back and look at how this process evolves. And one of the things that I found in the beginning is that they throw all this sort of stuff at you and say, here, you need to figure this out and you need to figure that out and you need to figure the other thing out. And, and when you're going through this process and the sort of hallmark of your condition is a lack of focus, yeah. to go through that process where it's like roadblock, 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 yes. a difficult transition roadblock, right? Mm -hmm. and, and you're trying to navigate this system and your brain is just ready to explode totally. because the, the idea of complex processes is just not happening for you in that moment. Yeah, totally. It is. It's 100% the challenge of interacting with some of these systems level pieces, whether that's like a work safe thing or an ICBC thing, or like whoever, whatever it's with, um, organizational health, whatever, is that our brains aren't in a position to self-advocate. And yet it's the time in our lives where we most need to self-advocate. Yeah. And that's the challenge. And I think to some extent, Jen, that's part of what you've been advocating for is like, we're dropping people, like we're not supporting them in the transition to go from, I can't function in this anymore. I need help accessing the things. I don't even know how to do that. And my brain isn't in a place where it can. And there's, there's nothing there to help shift that or ease us into a space and facilitate that process. And so then we just feel stuck. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way of explaining it. You just feel, you feel stuck in the system and, and, um, I think once you do find the right one, then you can look back and go, oh, the, yeah, that really wasn't the best treatment for me. Mm -hmm. But when you're going through it and you know you go day after day and there's still no, um, you're not closer to healing. In fact, you're actually taking steps backwards. That's where you really have to look at it and try and figure out what is it exactly that you need. And for me, it was really quite simple. I just, I didn't need straight, talk therapy. I didn't need to talk about my stuff all the time. I needed some answers as to what was going on with my body physically and mentally. I needed somebody to break that down for me. And it wasn't until I had somebody take control over what that looked like and start to educate me on it that I started to feel some sort of relief that I wasn't actually crazy, right? Like this was a, a physiological effect that was happening to me and it wasn't anything that was in my control. 
That's yeah. exactly what I needed to know. And from there on, it was just, you know, day by day, I could take it a little bit more at a time. But um, yeah, yeah it, it, everybody's different. But for me, that was the aha moment. I just needed somebody to help me understand what was going on with my body. So for each of you, what are the like key learnings that came out of those not so awesome experiences on the front end of seeking support that you would, I mean, A, kind of wish to know sooner so you maybe could have avoided some of that and or, you know, B, would want other people to know about to help guide and equip them to maybe avoid some of that along their own journey? I think there's a lot of things there. I think first off, there, as I said, there needs to be clear definitions. There needs to be things that we're told to watch mm -hmm. out for. Um, and I think that part of the journey is very similar where we're talking about just the relief that comes from knowing um, what's wrong with us. Yeah. Right. That um, I had a friend of mine who went through a very similar experience as well. And he was and luckily he had me who had already been through it because um, yeah. he was telling me what was going on for him. And I said to him, that sounds like post-traumatic stress. And mm -hmm. just that label. Um, yeah. Having a name to call brought it. a whole new. Yeah. Brought a whole new perspective to him right and yeah. and a relief that no i'm not you know i'm not just going insane here there is right. an actual you know word to describe what you're feeling and right. once you have that um it sort of gives you a hope right that things maybe can get better because now at least i know what i'm dealing with totally yeah i agree with you that probably one of the significant pieces is like an educational piece. Yeah. I think one of the things, um, so I, before the podcast, before all of these things existed, I made this tool that's an indicators checklist and triage guide for burnout. Um, and it was for that exact reason. Like I get so many clients who come in and they say, you know, I didn't know what to look for sooner. And then I got so far down this hole that I don't know how to get out of it. And I just kept thinking like, I'm so tired of hearing that story. <laughs> I'm so tired of hearing that story because it's yeah. needless. Like, yeah. why are we not educating you guys in what to look for and how to look for it sooner so that we have like early indicators before we're so far down into the hole that we can't dig our way back out? And how do we try to create some awareness? And, uh, you know, like I really advocate for regular check-ins. Like I really encourage people to do monthly to bi-monthly check-ins with themselves where they take the checklist that we made and they do the checklist with themselves and see where they're at because it fluctuates so much. And if we're not conscientious and like regularly connecting with ourselves, we lose track of it. And then we're so far in because we didn't know what to look for. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I love that point, TC. I appreciate that. So Jen, how about for you? Like, what are some of the learnings that have come out of this for you that you would wish you had known sooner or maybe would wish for other people to know about? Um, just that there's a lot of red tape to go through. There's a lot of red tape. <laughs> there's just a lot of hoops that you oh, got to go through. To, yeah. <laughs> so, and your, it, your main job is to please other people and satiate yeah. their paperwork when you're at a time of need, real need. 
And I think for me, I, you know, I, I, I was diagnosed from my uh, GP. I went after that um, diagnosis. I sat in my car in the parking lot and I dialed the three um, recommended doctors that he had given me and all of them had wait lists. Uh, so I went home and I, I picked the closest one that I could to my house and the one that could have uh, that had the most availability and I picked her and I saw her for a couple of months um, was getting worse um, mm. it just wasn't therapy that was what I needed at the time uh, was then referred to another individual and again I just didn't feel like it was suiting me properly um, and then I got really really frustrated and defeated and I ended up going for probably eight months with not seeing anybody at all. So yeah. the, the, the time between having two therapists where I was trying to seek answers on where I was going to go next to being off and not seeing anybody for eight months, I felt like there was no hope. There was, I was just at a dead end and there were, it was really a scary time for me to be in that place. And ultimately the, the doctor that I ended up seeing and continue to see was one that was referred to me by my own husband. So he was seeing somebody trying to, you know, get answers himself or how he could help yeah. me. Um, and so he kind of withdrew that, you know, doctor patient relationship and passed him on to me. And, it, and he's, basically saved my life essentially mm -hmm. but I just want I want people to know that it's a process there's some red tape and you're gonna feel like you're helpless and you're hopeless but it gets better and I think for my situation it started to get better when people were actually giving me some tangible answers as to what was going on you have to advocate for yourself you just do that's the thing yeah, you're energyless and you're advocating for yourself. So you're not at your best, but you have to keep forging ahead and you have to advocate for yourself. And if, if it applies and for your family too, because it, it, yeah. it affects everybody. Um, so I, I would say that that's the number one lesson is just forge ahead and, and keep you know advocating for yourself. And, and in cases like such as the RCMP where, you know, you're, you're on sick leave and you kind of feel like the clock's starting to tick because they're eventually going to come at you and go, you've been off long enough where it's just not, you can't compare a physical injury to a post-traumatic injury. Mm -hmm. They're just not the same. And I feel like the way they do their red tape, um, you know, they're, they're treating them the same. Yeah. So you can't just say, here's what's wrong with me. And here's when I'll be back to work. It doesn't work that way. Mm, yeah, totally. I mean, I think you're right that there's kind of these like systems level pieces in terms of what should change to make this better and easier in terms of access point, in terms of education around indicators, um, in terms of the support and facilitating access. I think you're right, all of those pieces. Um, in terms of the pieces we can control, I love that you've both identified a couple of pieces uh, that we as those who are seeking support can can have in mind or or kind of be working with. I think the one that I would add is don't settle. Um, so if you find yourself with, whether it's a therapist, but you know, really any professional that you're not satisfied with, um, don't be afraid to be a consumer like you would be anywhere else. If I ate at a restaurant and they served me bad food, I wouldn't go back. 
if I am seeking therapy or I'm paying for treatment for something, I'm a consumer of a service and I have rights to receiving a type of service that benefits me. And if this isn't meeting my needs, it's okay for me to seek out something else. Um, I think what is discouraging is it's sometimes a few people before we find the fit. Yeah, I think that the difference is, you know, as a consumer, you realize that it's a customer service type of atmosphere. Like if I go out for dinner, I'm not happy with the dinner. I'm not going to go back there. But it's not something that I internalize and think, oh, that's my fault. Whereas if you go and seek help, there is some sort of you internalize it or you can internalize it to the point where you go, well, I'm not fixable. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what people need to know is it's not one person for each person. There's so many out there that that can give you the help that you need. And if it's not working, it doesn't mean that you're not working with it. Totally. Well, and I think that any of us who are any good at what we do want to give permission for that. So like I have a process in my informed consent piece when I do that paperwork first session. And there's like a miscellaneous section on my form and it says you have a right to receive a referral to another counselor mental health professional and i always stop on that line and i do this piece with clients where i say this is actually probably one of the most important pieces on this whole form to me and the reason is that i don't want you to worry about my feelings if you feel dissatisfied with what's happening here or you just feel like it's not a great fit not everyone meshes with everyone else that's okay i am not going to be everyone's cup of tea I'm not going to take offense to that. I actually want to see you be successful. So I can probably do a better job of referring you on knowing what I know about you now than Google can. Right. And so tell me so that I can help facilitate that transition for you and support you in being successful elsewhere. You stewing here and not being successful doesn't benefit either of us. Right. And I think that that should be the, oh, it, it is customers. We should, we should try to attach that more. Um, that any professional needs to meet expectations and standards. And it's not just us being broken. That's the problem. But it's uh, like, it's not even about standards or um, it's, it's, you know, when we talk about like going out for a meal and the steak's underdone, yeah, you complain about it or whatever. Um, But when you're dealing with therapy, it's, it's such an, intimate and mm-hmm. encompassing relationship right mm-hmm. that um you could have the best therapist in the world and not connect with them yes and and if that happens whatever follows that is going to be useless right it's mm-hmm. not going to work totally. so um i think when we talk about self-advocating there's also a self-trust piece there where it's like, I just don't feel comfortable with this person. And it may be nothing that they've done or you're just not connecting with them on that level. Um, So, yeah, there definitely needs to be that sort of self-awareness piece there where it's like where it's okay to say you've done nothing wrong. You're a great therapist, but Mm -hmm. this is not working for me. Do you know what's funny is we, so we do this with therapists. We train them to know about this. We don't tell the people who seek our services this information, which is stupid, but true. Um, that I can't remember what the exact percentage is. I'll look it up and I'll put it in the show notes later. But it is a very significant percentage. I want to say it's something like 70% of success in therapy is accounted for by the therapeutic relationship. 
So it has zero to do with that person's education, background, training, credentials, any other factors. It is just the relationship dynamic and strength between these two people that determine such a significant proportion of the outcomes for that client. Now we know that. Uh, I remember learning that first semester, first year in my master's program, um, but we don't communicate that well, that you should have the ability to, to trust your instincts about if this isn't feeling like a fit, it's not that they're a great therapist and so their skills are gonna outweigh this relationship dynamic piece that feels like it's not totally on, that's not gonna improve things, it's not gonna dictate the outcomes. And there's lots of other counselors who, or psychologists who are very, very credentialed and trained too, who might have better meshing in terms of personality and relationship rapport building. Yeah, I, I feel that for sure. It's a, it's about yeah. the relationship. Yeah. Thanks to TC Randall and Jennifer Pound for joining me today. It's always a gift to speak with you both. I'll link to TC's book in the show notes, as well as to the Beating the Breaking Point Indicators Checklist and Triage Guide, and to Jen's blog. Don't forget to register for the Self-Care Dare five-day challenge for first responders and frontline workers. Registration opened this morning, October 19th, and will close on November 1st at 11.59 p.m. The Dare kicks off first thing on November 2nd. Registration is only $10 and includes five days of video lessons around five key domains for self-care, bonus resources and worksheets to develop a bomb-proof and sustainable self-care plan, access to our private Facebook group to connect, problem-solve, and hone our skills, and fun prizes along the way to keep you pushing forward. If you're needing to up your self-care game, join us and take the dare. As always, please reach out and connect if you have any questions or feedback. I love hearing from you and shaping this podcast to echo your needs and interests. If you have feedback you'd like me to share with either of my guests today, connect with me and I'll pass it along. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Lindsay A. Foss, or you can email me at support at thrive-life.ca. Please keep sharing this resource with those you know, and until next time, stay safe.